Good afternoon and welcome. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. Thanks for being with us. I appreciate it. My guest today is a seasoned reporter and familiar voice to public radio listeners. Aisha Roscoe is the host of Weekend Edition Sunday on NPR. She also hosts the Saturday episodes of the NPR podcast Up First. Before taking over those hosting duties, she covered three administrations in the White House for both NPR and Reuters. Aisha Roscoe is also a proud graduate of Howard University, known in some quarters as the Harvard of historically black colleges and universities. Howard is one of 107 HBCUs in the United States, public and private institutions that are home to more than a quarter of a million students. In her new book, Aisha Roscoe demonstrates the intimate relationship graduates of HBCUs often maintain with their alma maters and the significant influence that the experience of an HBCU education had on famous and emerging figures in a vast array of fields and disciplines. She has collected and edited a collection of poignant essays from a wide range of HBCU grads who explain what their educations and their institutions have meant to them. The book is called HBCU Made, A Celebration of the Black College Experience. Aisha Roscoe will be speaking about the book tonight at the Enoch Pratt Library, and she joins us today on Midday from Washington. Hey, Aisha, welcome back. Hey, thank you so much. That was such a lovely introduction. So well, thank you. Glad to be back. Yeah, it's great to have you because you, you've been uh, appearing on our show uh, ever since your Reuters days, which is yes. great. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we go way back. We've seen your kids grow up. They've been yes. They've been loud during during our <laughs> sessions, you know, <laughs> at various you know degrees. Yes, you know. yeah. Um, but um, it's it's great to talk to you, and congratulations on this collection. It's really really something. How did you choose the folks you wanted to contribute to this collection of essays? Yeah, so with this book, I, I really wanted to have a wide range of perspectives from different generations and, and from different schools. It was really important to me that we had, as you mentioned, um, you know, earlier, that there are, you know, more than 100 HBCUs in, in this country. And so even though I love Howard, it's my heart, it is not the only HBCU, Morehouse, Spelman, these HBCUs that we hear about all the time. There's so many others who get less press, less attention. So it was important to me to talk to people who were also from uh, Talladega College, also, um, you know, from uh, Dillard. And of course, we have April Ryan from Morgan State. Now, right I would talk here. to April Ryan about anything, <laughs> but she does represent Morgan State. So, uh, of course, I had to have her in the book. And the first essay, the very first one, is about you and your experience at Howard. Um, it's it's a really intimate look at not just your experience in college, but your life. I mean, you you talk about how you were really really shy and kind of a kind of a loner. Um, yeah. Tell us about that experience, both in high school and you know leading up to going to Howard. Yeah, I, I I was a loner. It wasn't by choice. <laughs> <But> I, was, 
Inadvertent loner. An inadvertent loner. Um, But yeah, I was just, you know, I was so shy, painfully shy, um, an introvert. Just, I wasn't, I didn't really know how to make friends, you know, no no other way to put it. Um, I was really good with like books and school and, and I had that all figured out. But people, you know, and especially like teenagers and, and preteens when I was in middle school are, are much more complicated. And I, I didn't have that quite figured out. And so getting ready to go to Howard, it was really scary uh, because my family recognized that I was pretty sheltered um, and that I, I didn't, you know, and, and that it would be a big uh, change for me to go to D.C., the big city. I'm from Durham, North Carolina. Um, and I, you know, would really have to really push myself. Um, it could have gone very badly, like when I look back at it now, but it, it actually was the best decision for me. I mean, you were um, a really good student, right? You yes. Were, you you were was, a brainiac. You still I are. I was a brainiac. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, top student, you know, all A's and you know, got a bunch of awards and, and yeah, so I, I was that type of student and I still, and I was doing journalism back then. I volunteered, um, well, I uh, uh, worked for the teen section of my local newspaper. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was like at the school newspaper. So I was doing stuff like that. I was writing articles about, <laughs> you know, about like barrel racers, teen barrel racers. I actually, did, I did an article about like teen cancer patients. So I was doing stuff like that. But, you know, that doesn't you write get you a lot of friends. You're about all these kids who weren't your friends, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but it doesn't, that doesn't get you friends, though. Yeah. That gets you, you know, <laughs> Get you a byline, though. Yeah, you know. <laughs> I, but I got bylines. So that's what I was doing. <laughs> I mean, was it was it difficult because you were so good at school? I mean, did were you... In a pretty, you were, you were breathing rarefied air, you know, up there with the the straight A students. But um, was, was that a barrier to to getting friends? No, I don't. You know, and I know some people will say that, like, oh, people didn't like me because I was smart. No, I, I don't. That wasn't the case. I think what what was a barrier for me is that I really didn't know how to talk to people. I would be around people, and if I didn't have anything to say, I just wouldn't say anything. And so, so I would, well, and, and that's ha- not. A, and having just admitted that, you picked a heck of a career. <laughs> a heck of a career. Like, it really, none of it really made sense. But, like, I, I didn't know how to talk. I didn't know that, like, oh, if you're around people, they expect you to talk. <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and now all you do is talk to people. And now this is all I do is talk to people. So it's pretty, I had a very rich internal life, and I was very, I think I had a lot of personality internally and with people I felt comfortable with. Um so I did always have that. But when I didn't know people, I was very timid. Um, and so I think now what I've been able to do is bring that internal side of me and that part of me that my family always saw and, you know, close you know, people close to me always saw that I've been able to bring that to the forefront. But I really had to learn like, oh, you have to like try to make conversation. I was kind of like Larry David. I didn't like small talk, but I realized now you, you got to you got to make some small talk. You got to talk to people. But, but uh, yeah, <laughs> you do have to do that eventually. Yeah. Right? yeah. Especially in journalism. But um, the the academic part of going to Howard I assume was not so intimidating, right? That no, you, no, you, were, I, you, you I, had a handle on that. Yeah, I went on a full ride. I was a national achievement scholar, 
So that was the the blessing. I yeah. So I went to Howard on a, a full scholarship, um, and I had to maintain that. But yeah, that wasn't a problem. And I you, you, that. you make the point that you know people go to HBCUs or to any college for that matter for a variety of reasons. Maybe someone in their family has gone there, or you know a friend of theirs has gone there, or they always had their heart on it. Um, what did you know about Howard in Durham, North Carolina? Uh, before you made the decision to go there? And was Howard one of several places you thought about, or was it always the one you had your eye on? Well, you know, it was the only HBCU I really considered. I considered three schools, and that was UNC Chapel Hill, um, Howard University, and then Ithaca. I'm not really sure why I was thinking about going to Ithaca. I don't, where, I don't think that would... As it turns out, that's where I graduated from. <laughs> really? Ithaca wow. College. I, yeah, that's I where I thought of going. I don't. I they sent me a brochure. I like the brochure, um, but I don't think I would have liked that cold in the snow. I don't think that would have worked for me. I can guarantee um, you would not have. Yes, it's gray from October to April. Yeah, I don't think I would not have liked that. But yeah, so I I was I wanted I knew I wanted to be a journalist, and it was really important to me that I leave North Carolina because you know I like you like we've talked about I was very shy and I didn't have many friends I wanted to kind of start over in a fresh place right like I didn't want to feel like I was going to high school 2.0 um and you know not that UNC Chapel Hill felt too close Mm -hmm. um even though it's a beautiful school has a great journalism school it felt like I would see a lot of people who maybe already knew me and I didn't want to see nobody who already knew me you know what I'm saying like I wanted to go away I wanted to go away Aisha 2.0 at that point. Yeah, yeah. To, to come out. And then I just, and, and I wanted to, you know, even get away, you know, be able to see if I could live on my own without my family and, and just be able to survive. Um, I had always had this vision of myself, like in the city and I could do this, but obviously had no proof of this. And so I wanted, and then, but the thing about Howard, I didn't know anyone that it went, but I, it just had this, um, to me, it felt cool. It felt, it felt like it was sophisticated, um, and, and, and worldly, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and it was, was. (laughs) it was, it was, and it, it was, you know, it was the model for, Hillman on it that on the show a different world and I felt like it was you know I heard so much about it Toni Morrison my favorite author went to Howard University it had so many famous alum and I was like oh this is where and when I we went to visit I'd never been before and we did go to visit and when I stepped on the campus I stepped on the yard you know, I saw like the Delta strolling and I saw, you know, all these beautiful black people like I wanted it to be my home and, and it really did become my home. Um, but, yeah, once I saw it, I knew that it's where I wanted to go. You write that going to Howard was to stand on the shoulders of giants. You mentioned Toni Morrison and the list of, you know, distinguished alum of Howard is huge and long and incredible. But were you, you know, really as a 17-year-old, 18-year-old kid, really conscious of those giants? Uh, And was that a big draw for you? Yeah, you know, I mean, like I said, I guess because I was a bookworm, you know, the fact that Toni Morrison went there was a big deal for me. Um, You know, the fact that all of these, you know, Felicia Rashad and Debbie Allen and, you know, all these like amazing people had been on the campus, Zora Neale Hurston, 
Um, the fact that they had been on that campus where I would be, um, to me was, um, it made me feel like, I think that maybe I could be something in somebody someday, right? Not who they were, but maybe there was a path for me. Um, yeah, so I think because I was so probably bookish and, and, and focused on school, the fact that so many people had went there did, did make a big difference to me. It's midday. My guest is Aisha Roscoe. She is the editor of a terrific collection of essays called HBCU Made, a celebration of the black college experience. And of course, the other decision that you and so many others have made is to go to either an HBCU or a PWI, predominantly white institution. The other two on your list were PWIs, UNC and Ithaca College. Um, How did that calculation go when you were a senior in high school, a good student, you had options? Um, how How did you decide that, you know, that HBCU experience really was going to be unique? I would not have been able to really put my finger on it so, um, you know, precisely at that moment. Um, But I think part of what I felt like was cool and felt like so connected to was the fact that this was a school for black people um, and people that look like me um, and, and that it was a school where black people had been able to come in and grow and then go out into the world and do incredible things. But at the time, I don't, I I didn't really have like, I I don't think I would have articulated it that way. I would just say, oh, it seems so cool. It just seems like a a nice place. You know, it Mm -hmm. just seems like there's something about it that, you know, just stands out to me. Like Howard, you know, it's the Mecca. Um, So I don't think I would have had the words for it. But I do think now looking back on it, that that's really what was drawing me to the to the city and, and and to Howard was this place where all of these black people had been able to shine um, and, and and I think that's what stood out to me and of course you ended up uh, on the hilltop the student-run newspaper which has an incredibly storied history itself uh, founded by none other than Zora Neale Hurston back in the 20s um, so that experience, uh, working in a student newspaper, but but you know a student newspaper at, at a prestigious HBCU, uh, I could imagine was extremely formative. Oh yeah, I mean it, it was the the key part of my college experience. You know, I, I didn't pledge, so I'm not a part of the, the Divine Nine. But I, you know, my <laughs> pledging was. The hilltop. I was there. You know, I worked on it pretty much from freshman year to senior to my senior year, and by senior year, I was um, editor in chief. And so it, it was. It was my entire life. I I learned so much as a journalist, as a person. Um, I, you know, I learned about myself and that newspaper at the time we were daily, like my junior and senior year, we were a daily newspaper, which we were the only black student newspaper that was daily, uh, at that time. Um, and so it was an incredible experiment. (laughs) It was an incredible, (laughs) you know, um, you know, it was really, um, 
you know, it, it was a lot of work, but it, it meant a lot to me. And so, and, and the Hilltop turns 100 this year and there's celebrations going on. So I do want to say happy birthday to the Hilltop. Happy birthday um, to the Hilltop yes, indeed. Yeah. Aisha Roscoe is the host of Weekend Edition Sunday and the author of a new book, HBCU Made, a celebration of the black college experience. We'll have more with Aisha Roscoe on the other side of a quick break. Our show was pre-recorded. So we aren't able to take any calls or online comments today. I'm Tom Hall. Stay with us. And welcome back. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. By the way, coming up tomorrow, a special musical event. The Swingles, a Grammy Award ensemble of virtuoso vocalists, will give a special midday mini-concert live from the performance studio at WTMD, our partner in the Baltimore Public Radio family. So I hope you can join us for what will be a terrific musical treat. And if you've just joined us today, we are being treated to a conversation with Aisha Roscoe, the host of Weekend Edition Sunday and NPR's Up First podcast on Saturdays. She is the editor of a new book about the joys and lasting influence of an HBCU education. It's a collection of essays from HBCU grads, including Oprah Winfrey, Stacey Abrams, Branford Marsalis, and many others who explain what their HBCU education meant to them and their careers. It's called HBCU Made, a celebration of the black college experience. My conversation with Aisha Roscoe was pre-recorded, so we aren't able to take any calls or online comments today. So, Aisha, before the break, we talked about our mutual friend, April Ryan, who is a yes. graduate of Morgan State here in Baltimore and still lives yeah. here in Baltimore, yes. a longtime Washington correspondent. Um, and her mom, Vivian, actually worked at Morgan, so she started hanging out there when she was just a little kid. Yes, yes. And she talks about that in the book. She has a beautiful essay. I'm so honored um, to have April Ryan, um, you know, in this book. Um, and she talks about, you know, being an HBCU baby um, and just growing up on the campus. And, and, you know, she says, you know, she was around when uh, Morgan was still a college and, and then it became a university in 1975 and she was just a kid just running around following her mom. Uh, her mom would tell her to, to go home after school but she wouldn't listen. She would come and hang out on the campus. Uh, so yeah, it was. It, she has she has beautiful stories um, in, in this book. And she says uh, HBCUs love you to success. Yes. And, and that, this comes through in a lot of these essays where the, the, the embrace that everybody writes about that they felt uh, in on their campuses. And these are campuses all across the country. But that there is a special quality to the embrace of the students at an HBCU, isn't there? It is. And I think that, I mean, and, and that was one of the things that really stood out to me in the book is that, you know, these are all people from different walks of life, you know, from different places, different schools, but there were these threads that just came out naturally, um, not through any direction, but just came out. And one of them was just community over and over again. You saw the strength of the HBCU community and how, you know, when things would happen, you would have a community that would rally around the person, you know, Tendai Kumba, who is 
is uh, now a Broadway dancer. When she was at Spellman, um, she she writes about she got into a bad accident and she thought she would never dance again. But it was her Spellman community that really rallied around her, and and now she's on Broadway. Roy Wood Jr. you know tells his story of getting in trouble when he was at FAMU, getting in trouble with the law. He got suspended, um, and for a, a semester, and so he had to go to FAMU professors to ask them to write letters to, you know, give him a second chance. Um, and he was given that second chance. And now he's, you know, hosting the White House Correspondents Dinner um, and, and at the Emmys just recently. So it's, it's definitely something that I saw over and over. It's just stories of community and people really being more like family and less just like a number or a student, but really a part of something bigger than bigger than themselves. And a lot of the folks uh, in this book uh, did start in journalism or mass communication or broadcasting. Um, April talks about uh, her first experience in radio being at WEAA, the station at Morgan State, and her first radio director was Kwaesium Fume, who's now yes. a member of Congress. You know? yes. So she's covering him now. You know? yeah. So, but yeah. but there, but these these connections, these this network of people, this comes through in a lot of these essays too. People uh, met uh, folks who had a lasting influence and and you know, maintained uh, a relationship of uh, lasting importance to so many people. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's the, the other part that sometimes I think people miss because there is this connection with HBCUs. Um, you know, oftentimes when you talk about, say, the Ivy League, there is an understanding that if you go to an Ivy League there that you are not it's not just that you get an education, but you get all of these connections. But at, when you go to an HBCU, there's also a network of connections that you can get and that, you know, people who will feel a connection or or feel, you know, connected to you because you went to an HBCU, even if it's not the same school, right? Like, even if they went to FAMU, you went to Howard, it, it there is a, a, a connection there. Um, and oftentimes you will see Brandon Gilpin, who's the youngest person in this book. I think he graduated from Morehouse maybe like a year or two ago. So very young. Um, and he's an actor and he talked about how it was connections that he forged at Morehouse that have helped him to this day. People have mentored him. He's been on sets and all of these things and gotten jobs because of people he met at more at Morehouse. Um, and so he, he talks about how that has helped him in his life. I got my first job at Reuters because of Howard um, University. Reuters had a business reporting class on Howard's campus and that's how Reuters got familiar with my work um it was because of that class it wasn't because you know otherwise I would not have qualified for an internship I, I'd only done one other internship before I interned at Reuters and that was with the Winston-Salem Journal um and mm -hmm. everyone else and everyone else had had internships with the Wall Street Journal and with right. you know and the Washington <laughs> oh, that other Post. journal yeah, yeah right. that other journal um uh, but they got to see see my actual work in the class. Um, and, and that was like what put me on my path. 
Um, so it's it's a lot of connections that I think people don't realize. Yeah, and uh, you mentioned uh, Brandon Gilpin. Um, he actually was walking across campus, and they were shooting yes. a scene from a <laughs> TV show. He ended up being on the show. And being I mean, on the show. And Jasmine Guy, who um, starred in A Different World, who so many people in this book talk about a different world and how it impacted them and made them want to go to an HBCU. Um, Jasmine Guy was starring in this new show. So it was like, which was about an HBCU. It was uh, The Quad. It was the name of the show. It was for BT. But, it, you know, it was like this full circle moment, right? Um, and But, yeah, I, I was amazed by, like, I mean, you see the power of so many things, but you also see the power of art. That depiction of HBCUs by a different world, it really impacted people. Aisha Roscoe is my guest. She's the host of Weekend Edition Sundays on NPR and the editor of a terrific collection of essays called HBCU Made, a celebration of the black college experience. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. We're not taking calls or comments because our conversation was pre-recorded. Um, much to your credit, Aisha, you also include uh, an essay by a guy named Michael Arsenault, who's a, an yes. author. And he talked about, he's a gay guy who talked about the anti-gay incidents that happened. He was also, a, he is also a Howard graduate. Um, yes. The anti-gay incidents that happened at Howard, at Morehouse, and at some of the other HBCUs while he was in college. Um, and he talked about uh, you know, if you're gay or trans, you're a double minority, and the and the mm-hmm. the challenges that that he uh, and and his community faced, too. Yeah, and I, you know, it was important. I was so glad um, to get Michael um, Michael's essay. Michael is a New York Times bestselling author, and he went to Howard. You know, the same time that I did. I was so glad to get it. I think as a journalist, um, I didn't, I never wanted this book to just be fluff. I didn't want it to be just a PR piece. I wanted it to be, um, you know, insightful and I wanted it to be a love letter, but a love, but I feel like love is complicated (laughs) and love also calls for you know, for institutions and the things that we love and the people that we love to be the best that they can be. So that sometimes that means calling out those things that are not working because you do love the, you do love the institution. And so it was important to me to have someone um, who is LGBTQ to talk about what that is like and that it has, that there has been a lot of homophobia on, um, HBCU campuses and how that is something that needs to be addressed um, and something that needs to be talked about. Um, So I was really honored um, and happy to have him talk about his experience and not to just, um, you know, I didn't want this just to be, uh, you know, oh, everything is great and perfect. I wanted it to tell like a real story of of these schools, the good and the bad. But but ultimately, it all comes from a place of love and just wanting these schools to be everything that they can be. Yeah. And it's an important contribution that he made. So again, bravo to you for being sure to include it. Um, it's interesting to me that HBCUs uh, obviously started uh, after the Civil War because uh, African Americans were not allowed to attend uh, white colleges. Um, and But now, 
uh, at least as of a, a couple of years ago, almost 25% of the students enrolled in HBCUs are not black. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think that means? Uh, does that do anything to you know, dilute the experience of being in that vibrant black community for African-American kids? I think it is a, a complicated um, story because I, what I what I appreciate about that statistic is that while um, black people were shut out of other institutions, um, HBCUs never shut out others, right? Mm-hmm. From its from its uh, from these institutions, um, and so um, HBCUs have been a, a safe haven for all people, even though they were created as a refuge for people who were being shut out. And I think that's actually a beautiful thing. I do think that as we talked about, some HBCUs are much smaller. So like on the campus of Howard, you've always had, there have always been, you know, non-black people on Howard. That mm-hmm. has always been the case, but it's not like a huge amount of people, but it's they've always been there. Um, but I think for some of the smaller campuses, um, you have seen an influx of students um, who are not black. And, and that could be for a lot of reasons because they've had less resources. So they've had to, you know, go out further into the community to to bring more students to the school to keep things going. Um, and so I think you would have to look at the individual schools to see how it's affecting the traditions or how it's affecting the schools. But I, I, I will say that HBCUs, um, although they have made such a great impact, they have been chronically underfunded. Um, the Biden administration has shown shown this, um, that especially the land-grant schools who are supposed to get a certain amount of money from the states ha- have, um, you know, been underfunded by billions of dollars. That's billions with a B. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, a lot of these things have been very intentional and in not providing HBCUs with the support that they need. HBCUs have had to do more with much less. Um, And so I think that sometimes that has made it difficult for HBCUs to stay open, to keep their accreditation. Um, You know, a lot of them, of course, the bigger schools, the Spelmans, the Howards, they're thriving um, in many ways. But some of the smaller schools, they're not getting $100 million in donations. Yeah, that was just Um, announced the other day for for Spelman. Spelman got $100 million. (laughs) They're not getting that. And so it, it makes a difference. It makes a very big difference. Yeah, uh, and these larger schools, it's not the case for all of them, as you say, but uh, something called the National Center for Education Statistics. Who knew that there was such a thing? Um, HBCU enrollment went up 7% during the COVID years from 2020 Mm -hmm. through 2023. So many other colleges came to the, you know, PWIs came to the brink of uh, closing because uh, enrollment dropped precipitously. Uh, during the COVID years, uh, when you know, students were going to school on Zoom for part of the time, et cetera, et cetera. But HBCUs as a as a group, and it's, again, not true of every single one, but as a group, they're really thriving. I mean, they're, they, they've got more students knocking at the door than they've ever had. Yeah, you know, I think a lot of that has to do with obviously during the during the pandemic, um, you had the the George Floyd 
um, you know, the death of George, the murder of George Floyd, and then you had the protest afterwards. And then there was that kind of racial reckoning. So there was a lot of conversation about why don't we support our own institutions? Why don't black people support their own institutions and have athletes go to black schools and, and students choose to go to black schools? You also had Beyonce do Beachella, which I feel like is a very big, you know, sure. I, you know, I am a big Beyonce fan, but I feel like you can't, you know, to have someone at her level putting HBCU culture, the, you know, the band culture, the, um, the majorette culture, all of that on, you know, display, the Divine Nine, all of that on display, that was huge. And then she also gave scholarships for kids to go to HBCUs. Um, and, and so all of that, you know, Deion Sanders went to Jackson State for a little while. You just had all of these these things happening. And not only that, you obviously have a vice president who is a Howard graduate, Kamala Harris. Um, and, and so all of these things, I think, put a real spotlight on HBCUs. And that's why you see so much attention and so much um, and April talked about this, how in the past, when she would talk about HBCUs, people would, you know, kind of accuse them of segregation. But now when she talks about HBCUs, um, she says people are like, oh, you think you're so much so good because you went to an HBCU like you're so <laughs> like you're so high and, you know, mighty because you went to an HBCU. Like it's really been a shift in how people look at them um, uh, compared to the past. To be sure. Aisha Roscoe, her new book is called HBCU Made, A Celebration of the Black College Experience. We'll have more with Aisha Roscoe on the other side of a quick break. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. Stay with us. Welcome back. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. If you just joined us, my guest is Aisha Roscoe. She's the host of Weekend Edition Sunday on NPR and the editor of a terrific collection of essays about what going to college at an historically black college and university has meant to a range of successful African-American HBCU grads. It's called HBCU Made, a Celebration of the Black College Experience. Our conversation was pre-recorded, so we're not able to take any calls or online comments. So, Aisha, uh, we talked a little bit before the break about um, the the confluence of uh, the BLM uh, movement that rose from the, the deaths of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, uh, back in 2020, and the fact that HBCU enrollment at that time uh, spiked. Uh, and has stayed up. There's also a long tradition of activism at HBCUs. I mean, HBCUs were uh, the college mm -hmm. kids who were behind the civil rights movement in the 60s um, and even before that. And, of course, now we're at a period where there are, uh, you know, very purposeful frontal attacks on DEI programs uh, in business and in academia. You have yeah. a couple of DEI uh, experts who write uh, essays in this book, Rebecca Roussel and Melanie Parker. They don't necessarily write about DEI specifically, yeah. but that's what so, what they ended up doing. Mm -hmm. um, the DEI is under attack. Yeah. Um, what do you think that means, and and what role it, will HBCUs yeah. play in countering it? 
You know, I, I think, you, you know, you mentioned Melanie Parker. She is um, the head of diversity for Google. Um, and so, and she went to Hampton. And then uh, Rebecca Roussel um, is, is a Dillard graduate who now does, um, you know, a PR focused on diversity. Um, I think that... Uh, I think that when you look at the attacks on DEI, um, it's very similar to the attacks that you see on the word, you know, woke. It's, you know, um, it's it's something on the, the CRT, the critical race theory. Yeah. It seems like at this point, when people throw around the word DEI, what they are really talking about a lot of times is just the presence of someone who is not white. So if you see a black person in a position, you will see people say that's DEI. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's like, well, how is that? That's the only. That's the only explanation. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yes, and 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 there's always a question of merit. So when you see a, a any person of color, um, in a position, then all of a sudden it's like, well, what about merit? If you see an all white panel, there's no question about merit, right? There's like, uh, do do all of these white men are they do they have merit? Um, you don't see those questions, and so, so I I find that to be very fascinating. Um, that merit only comes up when it's someone who is not white. Um, but I, I think what you see, and, and HBCUs are not immune to, to problems. They are not you know perfect by any means, as we've discussed. But um, I think what you see at HBCUs is a training up of people who um, can see these attacks in the larger context of this his the history of this country, right? Like these attacks do not come out of nowhere. They do not come out of a vacuum, but they are out of, a, I think, a very long line of this country grappling with its diversity, grappling with uh, the vestiges of racism, grappling with the vestiges of Jim Crow and all of these things and what it means to be in a country um, where everyone was not free, um, what it means to be in a country where there, you know, were citizens who were second class citizens and that this is a country that is still dealing with that and still dealing with what that means now and how do you deal with it going forward and there are different views on that but I think that you see at HBCUs and elsewhere but definitely at HBCUs you see people who know that context and can respond in that and can respond in that way. But HBCUs also have to be careful because they could also be attacked, right? There are some people who would look at the attacks on affirmative action and say, well, really, do we need HBCUs in this day and age? Even though, as I've said, HBCUs do not keep other races out, there are people who make the argument that it is somehow segregation. Um, and, and so I, I think that HBCUs have to be ready and also be on guard that they don't also become um, victims of these attacks. Yeah, that's a really good point. Of course, we had the example of Dr. Claudine Gay, uh, former president of Harvard University, after she came to yeah. prominence after that uh, testimony she gave uh, in front of Congress, people started saying, well, how'd she get to be the president? She's got kind of a thin resume. Uh, and yeah. then, then people attacked her for uh, alleged examples of, of plagiarism in some of her scholarly work. She wrote a piece in the New York Times after she left who said, and she said, trusted institutions of all types, from public health agencies to news organizations, will continue to fall victim to coordinated attempts 
to undermine their legitimacy and ruin their leaders' credibility. And this is happening. So HBCUs are certainly are going to be in that leadership role uh, moving forward when we continue these conversations about CRT and about DEI, all the other acronyms that uh, seem to make a lot of people fearful for some reason. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's a part of the, you know, it's a part of the story and it's a part of the reckoning in this country. And when I say reckoning, I mean, you know, I feel like this country is always in a reckoning, right, over its history, sure. over what has happened, over what has continued on today. Um, and so that's a part of it. And I, and I do want to be clear that HBCUs are not always, you know, um, a, a safe haven. You know, we we talked about recently Dr. Antoinette Candia Bailey, a black woman at an HBCU at Lincoln University. Um, she took her own life um, and there are reportedly she had accused the HBCU of bullying. Um, the head of the HBCU was actually a white man. Um, but there's, so I want to be clear that HBCUs are not perfect. Um, and that sometimes the very same struggles that especially black women, um, face and, uh, can, they can also rear their heads at an HBCU. Um, and that's something that I think needs to be examined and thought about and that people really need to not just love these institutions, but to support them and push them to be the best that they can be. Sure. And, you know, just the number of great leaders who have come from HBCUs. You mentioned Vice President Harris, who's a Howard graduate. Stacey Abrams has a wonderful essay in this collection. Uh, she's a Spelman yes. graduate, and she talks about uh, in particular, how the president of Spelman uh, allowed her the space, allowed her the room to to grow as a leader. You know, I, I loved um, the, the essay from Stacey Abrams. I mean, she talked about how she first started going to city council meetings because a professor at Spelman encouraged her to. She ran for her first political office there. I believe it was freshman class president and she even you know she was involved in activism you know she stormed the board of trustees meetings um i i think they were protesting like a tuition hike um and what she talks about is how yes wherever she went she would have probably been involved in activism because of her history because of her family but it was that spellman that that passion it wasn't just there and kind of you know uh, allowed to just go wherever but it was guided that's what she talks about the importance of guidance and not just okay you want to protest but here are some thoughts on how that works and 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 what you're trying to do and how what are you trying to achieve and and all of those things so i i think that what i got from her essay was really like the guidance for even even when you're pushing back against the institution even when you're being an activist you're learning you're still learning and i think that's I, I got that at Howard um, over and over again because, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of protests at Howard. You know, it's a part of the culture. It's a part of the culture. And but but you also get you learn about how to channel that. Um, sometimes it's rage, but how to channel that passion in productive ways. If you've just joined us, my guest is Aisha Roscoe. She's the editor of a new book called HBCU Made a celebration of the black college experience. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. We're not taking calls or comments. Our conversation 
was pre-recorded. So, Aisha, there's a wonderful essay in here by Branford Marsalis, the great uh, musician, uh, brother of Wynton yes. Marsalis, uh, former head of the Tonight Show band, etc., and he's toured all over the world. Um, he decided to go to Southern University, uh, and a lot of folks uh, in his milieu uh, in New Orleans, where he was at a creative high school uh, with some big names. Wendell Pierce was there, Terrence Blanchard, uh, Harry Connick Jr., mm-hmm. uh, all sorts of people were there when he was prior to college, but he decided not to go to a place like Oberlin or uh, Juilliard, a place that's known as a music school. He wanted to go to Southern because of the mm-hmm. band, which I thought was the marching band, which was yeah. really cool. But he, you know, <laughs> the and, marching band. But here's a guy who's who has toured the world, playing all over the globe. Um, he's chosen to teach at an HBCU now when he's uh, here in the in the States. And he says uh, in his essays that in the U.S. we've accepted the European understanding of blackness, the color of our skin. And he says going to Southern mm-hmm. and being immersed in black traditions and culture on a daily basis gave me a better understanding of myself and the duality of my existence. Um, that's a really important dimension to that HBCU experience where uh, it's not defined in European terms. Yeah, it's 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 being it's black people being able to define themselves, mm-hmm. um, which is um, allows for a very broad range of experience. The uh, the other thing that came through in in all, pretty much all of the essays was the diversity of the HBCU experience. And I know a lot of people go diversity. No, like. There are black people from all over the world. <laughs> there are black, you know, there are black people from the continent of Africa. There are black people from the Caribbean. There are black people, you know, from from all over the world. All sorts of different experiences. You had rich black people who, um, you know, summered in Martha's Vineyard. You had first generation college students, um, and, and everything in between. And so, I, what you see, and I think part of what Branford Marsalis is saying is like you see the humanity. Um, of 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 the black experience that it's not monolithic that we are all human beings and individuals, um, and that you know there is a wide range of experience and and that's what I think this book also highlights and that I feel like is so important for people to understand that um, there is a culture on. HBCU campuses, but it's it is very diverse and it's influenced by so many different parts of the Black experience because the Black experience is it's quite um, broad. And in our last couple of minutes, uh, Oprah Winfrey is in here. Uh, it's the final essay in the book. It's adapted from yes. a commencement address she gave at her alma mater, Tennessee State. She talks about the acts of compassion that can be a lifesaver for somebody who receives it, but also for the person who offers it. Uh, And uh, compassion is a theme that uh, comes back time and again in all of these these essays. Um, What what did you learn about HBCUs that perhaps you didn't know uh, from your own experience at Howard? I I learned a a lot. Like, I I think I learned what I didn't, you know, from pulling this together, 
Um, I learned about the kind of connective tissue um, that even though there are lots of different HBCUs and lots of different traditions that I didn't know about, um, that there's all of these ways in which there are connections and the impact and the effect of HBCUs is felt in the Oprah Winfrey's and the Bramford Marsalises and the Stacey Abrams. Um, and it's also felt through, you know, my work and, and, and the work of others, you know, and it's being felt through the work of like a Brandon Gilpin who just got out of school. Like, so HBCUs have had an impact, but they are still having an, an impact. The legacy lives on. And that is also what I felt like stood out to me in pulling this book together is that the impact is not over. It's not a history lesson um, that is very much a today lesson. It's still going on. And that's what I appreciate. Well, the book is great. And I think it will do a lot to advance that impact that HBCUs continue to have. So congratulations on it. Oh, thank you so much. And and thank you so much for giving me the time to really talk about it. I, I really appreciate it. And I really appreciate WYPR. Well, we appreciate NPR, and, uh, of course, we tune in every Sunday morning, so thanks so much. Aisha Roscoe, the new book is called HBCU Made, a Celebration of the Black College Experience. Aisha Roscoe will be in conversation about her book with NPR's Juana Summers tonight at 7 o'clock in the Wheeler Auditorium at the Enoch Pratt Library. That's it for us today. Coming up tomorrow, a midday mini-concert with the Swingles a Grammy Award-winning jazz vocal ensemble. They'll sing for us live from the WTMD Performance Studio. Coming up now, it's Here and Now. I'm Tom Hall. Thanks for being with us. I appreciate it. Have a great day.